Let us begin with prayer. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. O God, our Father, whose holiness fills all heaven and earth, and whose glory lightens our days, Give us grace so to walk that we might know indeed that heaven and earth are filled with thy glory. That thy word is truth and thy word shall prevail. That every knee shall bow unto thee and every tongue confess thee before thy work on earth is finished. Therefore we praise Thee, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we come into Thy presence with joy and thanksgiving, knowing that this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Our God, we praise Thee. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of St. Matthew, the 20th chapter, verses 25 through 28. Matthew 20. 25 through 28 in our subject, Authority and Ministry. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister." And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. The occasion of these comments by our Lord was when the mother of James and John, two of the disciples, came to him to ask for enthroned places for her sons in Christ's kingdom. Now, the mother of James and John, whose name was Salome, was our Lord's aunt. As a result, she felt that she had a privileged position and therefore could ask for privileges for her sons. Our Lord had denied Salome her request. But when the other disciples heard what she had done, they were indignant. Our Lord called the disciples together to speak to them. And verses 25 through 28 
give us his words. Now, the word that our Lord uses in verse 25 when he says, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. That word, dominion, is a particular word for a particular type of dominion. It is used in the New Testament only in an evil sense. For example, in Acts 19, verse 16, it refers to the power of demons over men. In 1 Peter 5, 3, it refers to evil elders lording it over others, over Christ's people. And it is a combination of two words, kurios, lord or dominion, and kata, which means down, intensively so. So the meaning is lording it over someone. So what our Lord is saying, he know that the princes of the Gentiles love to lord it over them and that they that are great exercise authority upon them. Now again, the word authority is different from the usual word for authority because here again, instead of just usia, there, it is, there is the prefix kata. So, it means the authority to put down it refers to something other than the godly exercise of authority. It refers to putting down people. So here we have the usage of two words not normally used for dominion and authority which indicate lording it over others and putting them down. And this, our Lord says, is what ungodly authority is all about. At the same time, our Lord says, It shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. The word minister is diakonos. Uh, our word deacon, a servant, one called to minister. However, in the next verse he says, Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, doulos, which means slave. You make it your life to minister under God to these people. Then in the 28th verse, when he says the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many, he again uses the word diakonos, forms of it. Thus our Lord differentiates between two kinds of authority. First, Gentile or ungodly authority 
and dominion, which is a putting down of people. It is a striving for power for one purpose, to lord it over others. It's the kind of thing Orwell was talking about in 1984 when he described the goal of the totalitarian state, a boot stamping on a human face forever. Orwell caught the meaning of the words our Lord was here using without knowing about them. Now this evil is all around us. Authority is equated with the power to put down people. And our Lord is clear, all ungodly authority and dominion means putting down people, not ministering to them. In the triune God, authority and power are inseparable. Authority in the Bible is hierarchical, but ungodly authority is elitist, grounded in humanistic considerations. In fallen man, authority and power are not united as they are in God. The more godly we are, the closer we bring them together. But in, in the ungodly, they are often far apart. In fact, men can hold godly authority in ungodly ways and on alien premises. We had a visitor this past week to illustrate this premise. He was a man who was an authority figure in the Benedictine order. He was described by Otto after the meeting as the rudest man he had ever met and without a trace of courtesy. As usual, Otto was being very kindly. <laughs> <laughs> very early, he, although the meeting was primarily to discuss a forthcoming book with David Rhodes, who is working on it, a very excellent thesis. He let us know that uh, he regarded Aquinas as the greatest disaster in the church. Then he let us know a little later that uh, St. Paul did not know what he was talking about. This he said three times. When I cited St. John on the definition of sin in his first epistle, he waved that aside and said there, he didn't know whether there was such a thing as sin, only ignorance. However, uh, when I asked him if he were a, uni a universalist, he denied it, and it became apparent that he was ready to put churchmen into hell, but no one else, because he was ready to vindicate the French Revolution as necessary judgment on the church. He was ready to vindicate the Russian Revolution and in fact said he felt that Lenin was probably in heaven together with Hitler, but not Tsar Nicholas II. 
Uh, he, by the way, let us know that uh, we, he called us Calvinist Jansenists, were responsible for abortion in this country and much, much more. Now, I cite this man because he had institutional but not theological authority. He had not even read the Bible by his own admission. Now, this is the separation of authority that is commonplace. Just yesterday, I finished reading a book by a very prominent Lutheran scholar. And again, dealing with a critical issue of our time, never once invoked any godly authority, any biblical premise from beginning to end. His book was essentially pragmatic. Now, this separation of authority from God and its reduction to a purely institutional authority is very commonplace. And it leads to the kind of Gentile lording common to every area of life. To the academic world, the ecclesiastical sphere, the political, the scientific, and so on. Such men hold position and power, but they lack <coughs> godly authority. They are preeminent only because our culture and our churches see authority in the same terms. Men resent being on the receiving end of such authority, but they want it for themselves. Otto Scott was citing the other night his Irish grandmother's proverb, put a beggar on horseback and he'll ride you down. There are a great many beggars on horseback all around us. Long before Orwell and his description of power as a boot stamping on a human face forever, Genghis or Genghis Khan spoke in the same way about what he liked to do. At one time he said, for example, concerning his greatest joy, and I quote, The greatest pleasure is to vanquish your enemies and chase them before you, to rob them of their wealth and see those dear to them bathed in tears, to ride their horses and clasp to your bosom their wives and daughters, unquote. Now, that was the goal for Genghis Khan and for his men. It's not surprising that the Mongols made no positive contribution to civilization. They brought economic ruin and disaster wherever they went because they epitomized 
the Gentile conception of power, lording it over others. And the modern state is increasingly manifesting with a growing nakedness that same ideal. The Soviet Union and Red China most certainly manifested. And every modern state, as it gains in power, gains correspondingly in its lust to lord it over others. The Gentile doctrine of power, lording it over others, is thus common to history. The lust for power is present-oriented. It is not interested in ministering, but in using others. Then second, our Lord says that Christian greatness is in ministering to others, in being members one of another, as St. Paul put it. Such a doctrine is neither self-centered nor present-oriented. Our Lord says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness or justice. One seminary scholar, J.J. Davis, has commented with regard to South Korea, which is predominantly a Christian country. And he says, and I quote, when Kim Kyang-won, Secretary General to South Korea's President, was asked about the reasons for his country's progress, he replied, It's the culture of discipline and postponing immediate satisfaction for the future, even for posterity. Such character traits have encouraged a national investment rate of 25 to 35 percent of the gross national product, twice the U.S. rate, unquote. Did you catch that emphasis? That was once very, very common to this country, postponing immediate satisfaction for the future even for posterity. When I was a boy, I can still recall older men saying that they had done this and that for their grandchildren and great-grandchildren who were not yet born in some instances. That they had established this farm or built this house or developed this business with an eye to the future, building for the future, postponing personal satisfaction. Or consider the fact of John Dagg. <clears throat> Two years ago, Memorial Day, a descendant of John Dagg was with us, Beth Sutton, of most gracious and very charming young woman. She was the sixth generation descendant of John Dagg. What had John Dagg done with his life and with his prayers? Thought about the future 
and prayed that to the end of time, till the second coming of Christ, every descendant of his would be in the faith. And Beth said she was a sixth generation descendant and she did not know of a single one of John Dagg's descendants who was not in the faith. Now that's a remarkable fact. This is postponing immediate satisfaction for the future, even for posterity. And this is what our faith is about. We live not only for today and tomorrow an immediate satisfaction. We live not only in terms of seeing what we want realized now, but realized after we're gone. And this is what builds a culture. This is what creates a future. The ungodly seek power here and now, the power to lord it over others. The Christian uses authority and power to minister to others, to know that all things are in the hands of God and to leave them there in faith, knowing that we cannot see one minute or a second ahead. But God can. And known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the earth. And so we love and serve in Christ. And we wait in patience for his result. When the Bible speaks about love, it sets love in this context of service, of ministry. Love in the Bible is not a substitute plan of salvation, but an expression of our life in Christ. Instead of lording it over others, Christians seek to minister in love. As our Lord said, Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. In other words, greatness is in terms of service. The quest for Gentile power is a mark of reprobation. Even if the power structure is built in the name of Christ, it is a mark of reprobation when people seek power to be able to lord it over others. They may seek power in the name of the people, a very common pretext today, or in the name of freedom, or in the name of economic justice, but it is self-glorification they are after. Our Lord says something very plainly and simply. By their fruits shall ye know them. Now to deny the validity of that <clears throat> is to question Christ. 
To know what people are is not a difficult thing, our Lord says. By their fruits shall ye know them. And if you say, well, I don't know the heart of any man, our Lord says you do. And if you then say, well, I'm not going to judge, you're saying our Lord didn't know what he was talking about. He gave us a handy, easy, one-sentence criterion. By their fruits shall you know them. And that we are not to be as the Gentiles who love to exercise dominion, to put down people. Then third, our Lord in this incident declares himself the example of authority and of power and of ministering to others. He came to give his life a ransom for many. Now we are not called to make an atonement but we are called to exercise a ministry we are to separate ourselves from false authority and exercise godly authority the disciples beginning with Salome the mother of James and John were all exercised and greatly concerned with gaining Gentile or false authority. This is still all too often true of the church and of churchmen. But such a goal leads to a confusion of God's kingdom and man's. And again and again in history, the two have become all too confused. I recall reading some years ago a medieval document, a history, in which the bishop who wrote the history <coughs> said with no small grief that the kingdom of man, the kingdom of evil, and the kingdom of Christ had become so intermeshed that he said, sometimes I wonder where the one stops and the other begins. We see this sort of thing all too often. And all too often we have men attempting to further the confusion by acting as though they have no right to judge, which means no right to separate good and evil. No right to protest against confusion. No right to draw the line clearly. The issues between good and evil are clear-cut. We cannot confuse them. God and Satan cannot be confused. Neither can Gentile power ploys and Christian authority. There is a difference. And our Lord tells us what the difference is. Let us pray.
O Lord our God, we thank Thee that Thy word which is truth speaks to our every condition. Cleanse from us, O Lord, all Gentile authority and make us ministers of Thy kingdom and of Thy truth with a desire not to lord it over others, but to minister unto them and to serve them in Jesus Christ our Lord. Make us mindful, O Lord, that this is our calling, and that we have the great pattern of our Savior, who came not to lord it over us, but to serve us. How great thy ways are, O Lord, and how marvelous. We praise thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now concerning our lesson? Yes. Um, I've seen this uh, in the church that we have been normally attending, sort of, this sort of tension between... uh, a democratic individual power and authority versus a uh, clamoring for a king for the for the power and authority to be vested in the pastor, for example. This tension seems to be a real impediment to a, a post-millennial, theocratic, godly, dominion-oriented view catching on. Where's the the, the starting point for educating? Christians in this, in, in yes. dwelling on the Lordship of Christ initially, say, or, or what's the, the best foundation that we can use? Well, first of all, both a democratic authority and a pastoral authority can be Gentile. It can be a lording over people. And all too often today, the idea that because something is democratic, it is therefore fair, is prevalent. The democratic situation can be as intolerable as a monarchical or a a pastoral one. Both are evil if they are separated from from the authority of God and from the fact that they are called to a ministry. So, the only cure for that is that there must be a recognition of the sovereignty of God and the priority of His Word. Take that away and you have every man spouting his own opinion. You have the condition of the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. That is, they did not recognize the Lord as king. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We have the same condition today. Every man is an instant authority. And he feels that his word is as good as anybody else's. And where God doesn't agree with him, so much the worse for God. So this is the problem. Who is the Lord? They or Christ? And they need to be told that, that they're putting themselves in Christ's place. 
Yes, John. Do you think also that, uh, in part, uh, also the, the problem he just raised over here is due to the fact that very few uh, modern Christian theologians have uh, really sat down and dealt with the, the form of, of government in the church uh, that uh, this tension between pastor and democracy and everything else do you think maybe that could also be partly resolved by um, uh, a re-emphasis again of teaching the church what the proper form of church government should be? Uh, I know not what the form of church government should be, but what the authority in the church is, you see. You can have uh, varying forms of church polity or government and still have godly authority if the priority of God and his word is recognized. And you can have a very, very ungodly church with any kind of polity. In fact, one of the problems is that uh, when you look at churches, they emphasize even in their names their form of government rather than their faith. They are Episcopal or Presbyterian or Congregational. All of these emphasize a form of government. And that hasn't kept any of them from going sadly astray because the key is the Lord. It is theological. Yes, Bob. Many of our forefathers, uh, specifically the father of the Constitution, makes a, a very fine definition in the Federalist Papers, number 10, on just exactly what he thinks about a democratic type of government. Uh, he doesn't mention God as being the head but it certainly, certainly aims it right in that direction and denounces anything else. And the Constitution itself has both worked and failed depending on the character of the people. It's an abysmal failure today because the people are failures. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, I, I would like to know... <coughs> Where you go in the library to find quotations from Genghis Khan. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you read incessantly, things uh, stick in your mind so that when you come to a subject, you remember those things. Yes. There are so many places in the King James Bible where apparently the translators, the people who wrote that version, use words that are not clear to us, like dominion. Now, dominion apparently is used in two, the same word has two different meanings. Well, different words are used, now, but... Now, you say there's dominion, as hmm. you were talking tonight, but dominion is also used in a godly way. Yes, it's another word. And we only have the one word in English. However, it's very clear here uh, that 
our Lord distinguishes between a Gentile exercise of dominion. Now, the Greek is subtle enough to have a different word there. Uh, it is true that every time there is a translation of the Bible into a language, there are problems, especially because languages that are totally new to the Bible do not yet have some connotations of meaning that the Bible does. However, a Bible translation reshapes the language and gives it a new character and a new meaning. Uh, the King James is an excellent translation, not that it's perfect, but here I think it still comes through when he distinguishes between the Gentile exercise of dominion plus that which is a ministry. So we do have grounds for differentiation. It's not as clear as it could be, though. If uh, we, it's not as clear as it could be. The context. Yes, some modern translations do render it that the princes of the Gentiles lord it over them, which does help, and is a very literal rendering of the uh, Greek. Yes. I'd just like to add that there probably isn't one person in 500 million who could tell you the difference between one republic, which all countries are republic, they're not mm -hmm. stupid. They're going to set that constitution up to suit themselves. Mm -hmm. But there isn't one that could differentiate between, out of 500,000, I have hardly ever met any. They could tell you the difference between our republic and another one. Yes, but you see, it isn't a question of knowledge, it's a question of character. True, but then our, our republic at first puts the existence of God first, yes. individual responsibility second, limited government third, mm -hmm. and private property fourth. And no other constitution in this world had that aim. Yes. That's the difference. But when the character of the people changed, there was no constitutional guarantee possible to protect the future against the change of character. That's the key. A new concept of authority entered in. When you consider that men like uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson would go uh, from inauguration to a boarding house to eat and uh, nobody got up for them because the president wasn't that important. The federal government wasn't important. And they could walk down the street and nobody turned to look at them because what was important was what was going on in the churches and in the business houses and in the streets and the lives of the people? Today, because the federal government is everything, they could never function as presidents did then. 
then they had their proper place. The important thing was the people and their character, their faith, their work. And that's what made the country work. Well, our time is up. Let us bow our heads down in prayer. O Lord, our God, we give thanks unto Thee that all things come from Thee, that all things shall fulfill Thy glorious purpose. Give us grace to walk day by day in the confidence that Thou doest all things well, that our times are in Thy hands, and that our labor in Thee is never vain. Great and marvelous are thy ways and provisions, O Lord, and we thank thee. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.